Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Again, I'll have to apologize because it's been a while um, since our last episode, but again, please, my recommendation is that you follow us on our YouTube channel and on our Facebook page, as well as our website with our blog. We're always publishing content. It just might not be on the same social media platform all the time. I see the different platforms as different mediums and they all have their goals and purpose. So for example, I might make a short um, post or statement on Facebook and if it needs to go longer than a paragraph or two, then I'll probably write a blog on it. If it requires more visual input, then I'll make a video on it. And for the podcast, it's kind of just uh, the long, deep dive. So again, uh, this isn't a quick, this isn't something you want to listen to on your way to work or while you're distracted. Uh, that's not how I understand podcasts. Those aren't the podcasts that I like myself. So I do what I like here. I like those deep dives where people are talking for hours at a time and I get to be a fly on the wall and, and listen to uh, various masters and experts in the field. Um, so that's what I do here. I just hang out and talk. Uh, and I don't think I could do it in a video or in a blog or in a paragraph or two. Um, on this episode, we are going to answer a question from two different followers, so two questions. I'm going to put them together because I think they are related, and I'll explain how in a little bit. Uh, one question is on how to navigate and or mitigate a marriage along with a committed training practice in Aikido. And the other one is how to address the body's demand for recovery if you opt to train at the levels that I have suggested in earlier podcasts and on our writings and what we do here. When you look at those two questions and you look for a common ground between them, you're going to see that they're really questions on relationships. In the On the one hand, there's the relationship between spouses, but on the other hand, there's the relationship between uh, one's body and one's intention here, so the intention to train um, at an extensive rate. So what I'm going to do as a nexus for both is a reference, a blog that I had written on what is Aiki. Um, this blog on what is Aiki for me is one of those staples if you're trying to figure out uh, what I'm saying and what you're seeing in our videos, if you're interested in that. 
oh, this is one of those blog entries that you should probably keep referencing, going back to, reading again and again. Just kind of like our, our blog entry on definitions or our blog entry on what is martial, what is a warrior. Those kind of blog entries, I think, are, are pretty central. And they don't always make sense at first glance, uh, kind of like everything we do here. I think any viewer or reader has to kind of loosen up the hold that their current paradigm or their current training assumptions has over them before you really start seeing what I'm doing and hearing what I'm saying. So I'll be referencing that blog entry, what is article, and maybe at times just uh, reading directly from it, if not all of it. Before we go on, please, uh, please consider donating to our publishing efforts through our Patreon account. Information for doing that uh, will be in the episode notes. It's really easy. Uh, you just go, you follow the link, you insert your information, and you make a regular donation. Of course, any size is appreciated, even a dollar uh, on a monthly basis goes a long way. One might not think so, but I think uh, for the viewer or the user, uh, losing the entitlement of receiving things for free is going to have su su serious and uh, large impact on your own training. But if you did the math, you know, we easily get over uh, a thousand uh, listeners on just one of our podcast uh, platforms, and we use three of them. And we have about a hundred episodes coming out, uh, coming up on. That would be a, that would have been a hundred thousand dollars that could have gone towards improving our publishing content and means to do so and things like that. So please, a dollar is not much. A pound is not much. Of course, we appreciate those. Uh, honorable people that have already been supporting our efforts that way. If you're new to our, uh, you know, our, our publishing efforts here, you know, I'm going to put it out there. I have not found myself somebody that is publishing more content uh, on a regular basis uh, on Aikido than, than us. Um, you might want to consider, you know, Aikido Journal but uh, those days are gone. They might have an extensive library, but if you look deep into our, our stuff, uh, just take our website, you're gonna have uh, hundreds of writings there, or if you go to our YouTube channel, you're, you're gonna have thousands of hours of video footage all for free. So it's not much to ask for a dollar, five dollars, a pound, five pounds, etc. here to support this effort. You're Definitely, if you're thinking as a consumer, and you shouldn't, but if you are, you're going to get your money's worth there. All right, on with uh, answering these questions. I, I would like the listener to come to Aikido, and really you could understand Aikido as a wisdom tradition in relationships. And if you apply a historical understanding to what that means, 
which right there from that statement, what I am recommending is that you do an archaeology that moves you past what modern Aikido says a relationship is or modern culture says a relationship is and how we should navigate or mitigate them. You, you want to move past that. You're trying to understand Aikido. And Aikido has changed in both its epistemology at one level and also in its orientation, uh, its soteriology at another level. It's using modern concepts of ontology. And in essence, modern Aikido is just crap. So if you, if you want to understand uh, truly what Aikido is and what Aikido's position is on relationships, just in, as noted in my first sentence here, you're going to have to suspend all that information. So when you look historically pre-modern on what relationships are, you're going to eventually land on what we would call Taoist thinking or yin-yang theory. Again, this is a very complicated history when it comes to East Asia and the development of these ideas. So I'm just going to try to keep it simple. So here, for example, I use the word Taoism, but the ism part is a modern concept. And if you went back in history and you just took any location where you saw this thinking, you would not find an ism there. So for simplicity's sake, I use that uh, ism framework. Um, what we want to pull out is this yin-yang theory. When you look at yin-yang theory, again, to, to keep things simple, you're going to have the Tao. The Tao is uh, a, what we can call a field of potentiality. It is what pre-exists but allows for uh, everything that we know in reality, okay? In, in a way, it is very, very uh, similar structurally, philosophically, to an uh, apophatic understanding of God or the divine, which many pre-modern cultures had some sense uh, that, uh, some intuitive sense that something does not come from nothing, something has to exist the something that we have. But you don't want to say there's just more something. You'd know that there's something there. It's a field of potentiality. How do we know it's there? Because something manifested, existence manifested, and something can't come from nothing. What does it come from instead? Not more something, but this field of potentiality. So in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao ends up in splitting or dividing or manifesting first in yin and yang. The yin, yin and yang goes on and forms uh, various combinations or various values, uh, gives rise to things like the elements, and uh, that continues to go on in various combinations, various values of yin and yang or elemental relationships, and you eventually have the 10,000 things. And so in East Asian Chinese thought, 10,000 stands for the infinite. So that means all things forever. This 
uh, let's just call it a, a theory or a philosophy right now. So we have the Tao and we have the yin and yang. Uh, and what is understood in its wisdom traditions is there is there can be uh, a disharmony of yin and yang and a harmony of yin and yang. So if we take this to our body art, uh, a very common, common thing, I don't care what the rank is or the title, or how many people attend their seminars, it's almost, it's more impossible not to see this, but you will see, for example, uh, Uke will throw Yokomenuchi, and the Nage will stop the strike uh, with an opposing energy, which other arts openly call a block. Aikido won't call it a block because it's not supposed to block, because Aikido is not supposed to stop energy. Uh, but what allows for that stopping energy is the Yokomen. Uchi is yang energy, and the block has adopted yang energy, and it seeks to overpower the yokomenuchi. This is a yang-yang clash. Per yin-yang theory, this is a disharmonious manifestation of yin and yang. A harmonious uh, addressing of yokomenuchi would be, let's say externally, would be to let the strike continue on. Um, internally, it is to uh, uh, generate an Aiki adhesion at the contact point, which is not what most are doing. So let's get into this. So let me get us back where we were. So we have the Tao. It manifests in the yin and yang. There is the potential for disharmonious yin and yang manifestations, and there is the potential for harmonious yin and yang manifestations. An example of a disharmonious yin and yang manifestation would be a yang-yang clash. A harmonious manifestation of yin and yang would be to address the yang energy of yokomen uchi with a yin energy manifestation, such as letting the strike go by. As great as a harmonious yin and yang uh, manifestation is, this yin-yang theory notes a higher achievement, which is often described as a returning back to the Tao. So if you remember, there was a kind of sequence. First was the Tao, and then the Tao manifested into yin and yang, and it went on to manifest the 10,000 myriad things. Well, in yin-yang theory, you can... Uh, reverse that process. And that is, for example, you have yin and yang, you have a harmony of yin and yang, but you can find a, um, you can reconcile perfectly and totally the manifestation of yin and yang, and that is now a return to the Tao. And that is your highest achievement in your East Asian wisdom traditions, or, your, or as I said, uh, a wisdom tradition in relationships. You kind of have these two, two goals. So there is, let's say, the third goal is don't have a disharmonious uh, manifestation of yin and yang. The second goal would be have a 
a harmonious manifestation of yin and yang. But the highest goal is to reconcile the dichotomy between yin and yang and return to the Tao. If we represent this idea graphically, um, everyone knows the yin-yang symbol, um, it would be, don't be on the yang side or a yin side, uh, so that would be like uh, the, that third level, okay? You're, you're over too much on one side. You're not balanced, okay? And the second level would be the, the symbol as most of us look at it, right? They're in harmony. They're equally sharing the circle. That circle, that circle shape is uh, symbolically, if you look historically, textually, that circle shape is is referencing that that void, that emptiness, that that pre-existent Tao is what it is. That great unknowable, unnameable field of potentiality from which everything manifests. So the circle shape itself, and when you see the the, the two little wavy shapes in there with different colors, they are in a uh, a harmonious state of yin and yang. But the line between those two wavy shapes, that is where it is neither yin nor yang, but also both yin and yang. The, in other words, the dichotomous relationship between them has been entirely reconciled, and it is in that, graphically, we can say that is where we return to the Tao. In our body art, for example, you can, at one level, of course, as I mentioned, clash with uke. You, you're going to generate some yang-yang uh, clash, for example. Very, very common in most Aikido uh, that is trying to be more authentic or more practical or more martial. Uh, Aikido... Uh, lineages that do not utilize the choreographed uke who throws themselves, which most lineages today utilize. But in the lineages that are looking for a more authentic Aikido, you do tend to see a yang-yang uh, yang clash, like just repeatedly. In the choreographed lineages, the, the yang-yang clash would be present if it wasn't th that the uke was choreographed to go immediately yin at Naga's yang energy, which had, it would be a clash. So when uke is choreographed to go yin, this is what that first set or first group of lineages goes, this is inauthentic because that only worked because the uke stopped their yang intention. And I agree. You have to kind of take this larger group of Aikidoka that utilize the choreographed uke to cosmetically and artificially, inauthentically reconciling yin and yang. You have to just take them off the table. This is something... Uh, so artificial. Uh, imagine we were talking about food. Okay, we're talking about food, 
and you have some sort of totally artificial food, we're not even going to talk about that. That is, if we were talking about plastics, that totally artificial food would be in our conversation. But here, we're, we're not talking about fake Aikido. So we have to take that choreographed yuke off our, off our table of discussion in order to understand what we're trying to get at. And I do realize that's most people practicing Aikido today. But it is what it is. So in the lineages that are looking for an authentic Aikido, you're going to see those clashes, okay? This is very common. Uh, but if you go deeper, you'll see that there is a running dichotomy throughout everything that they're doing. So they'll have uh, a nage and a uke. The, pra the practitioner fully experiences nage and experiences that as distinct from uke. Uh, you'll have a beginning and an end. You'll have an attacker and a defender. Um, you'll have a desired for conclusion and an undesired for conclusion. And dichotomy is woven through that. And that's how most people practice the art. But ideally, what you're supposed to do is reconcile all of that dichotomies, have it all disappear, or in other words, return back into the Tao. You want to be uh, uh, at one with the unnameable and the unknowable. You want to be pre-dichotomy. And that is a much higher state of relationship than even just blending with the uke, etc. So when we when we look at, for example, how do I relate my spouse's wants and desires with my wants and desires to train, we can, at the beginning, use uh, a, harm, a harmony of yin and yang to try to appease things or bring peace to things or to reap the benefits of harmony. But ultimately, we're looking for a communion. Uh, we're looking for a return back to the Tao. The same would, of course, apply for our body, our, the needs of our body in, regard to, in regards to our training and what it's doing on our body. You can do uh, some yin and yang reconciliation or, or, or harmonization so, for example, oh, my body is really tired. Um, okay, let me give it more rest. I'm going to take some time off of training. Well, that's a matching of yin and yang, but it doesn't really solve for the solution that you would ideally want, which is to have your body, including your fatigue, become part of the training, not something that is even temporarily antithetical to the training. Likewise, going back to your spouse, so in my case, uh, my wife, um, you can only do so much by harmonizing uh, with my wife, but if I can find the communion between training and my relationship with her, 
then I'm going to be better off in terms of what I can do with the art. And I would say I'm just better off at the art. When you move past Chinese culture, and again, this is pre-China stuff, but for simplicity's sake, we'll call it Chinese culture. When you move past Chinese culture and you're following the Silk Road and the ideas are passing through Korea into Japan and you move forward through the centuries as the Japanese worked on, on these ideas or with these ideas and you move into the pre-modern era as it hit uh, those practitioners that did Daito-ryu and eventually you're going to hit O-sensei, uh, this line that is between the two wavy shapes in the yin-yang theory, in the yin-yang symbol, or this notion of returning to the Tao, this notion of reconciling the dichotomous nature between yin and yang, that is aiki. That's exactly what it means. It's a returning to the source. As you look at uh, Omoto Kyo's influence on O-sensei, uh, and uh, Deguchi's ex self-exposing, so he exposed himself to various uh, religious groups outside of Japan uh, that were also working on a revitalization of the mystical traditions on a global scale. This is where the idea of returning to the Tao and or this Aiki communion between yin and yang where they're indistinguishable, uh, it was connected to that apophatic sense of God, Okami. Uh, but if you go early enough back into Chinese history, you see the same thing. Uh, you'll see a cross-referencing between um, heaven and the Tao and also understanding heaven as this kind of deity, this apophatic deity or apophatic divineness. Uh, so it's not like Deguchi is totally borrowing uh, something and, and integrating it and immigrating it into Japanese uh, religious theory. Uh, there is precedent for it as you go back far enough in time. But this is definitely where O-sensei is equating, for example, God or the divine, Aiki, and love. These things are concentric to each other, and they are the highest uh, wisdom of relationships. Okay? So with that in mind, let's get into this blog entry. I'll just start reading it. The defining of Aiki is a very difficult thing to do. This is because the concept defies the dualistic and dichotomous nature of language and the linear functioning of the intellect. It is conceptual, it, in its conceptual nature then, Aiki is an apophatic concept. So apophatic means that, and, and you see this in all mystical traditions, uh, because of the problematic nature of language and the intellect, its reliance on dichotomy, most mystical traditions will use apophatic uh, thinking. So they'll define it more in the negative. What, what it's not is what they're going to tell you. 
So Aiki is an apophatic concept. Therefore, if one wants to truly understand my understanding of the concept, I would always recommend for one to watch, read, and listen to all of our pub publications, that is our videos, the podcast, blogs, posts, etc. All those things I mentioned at the beginning. I would also advise one to pay attention to the caveats I've given regarding contemporary or modern understandings of Aiki, so as not to be led astray, since nearly all of what is said to be Aiki today is in fact not. So that is again something I started this conversation with. Um, there is, as I said, if you, and you know, this was my field as a historian of religion, that's why I can kind of just do these spontaneous talks on this. Um, you can trace the history back textually, uh, institutionally, and you can know what these things are, um, and you can also know what they have become. Um, what we have today in people talking about Aiki is really a demographic that has no idea what that history was. And so they're kind of coming up with it. Um, you know, what so-and-so told me this or so-and-so told me that, but that person themselves did not know the history. Uh, and as a result, Aiki has become totally something different today um, with no historical foundation whatsoever. We might, as moderns, we do, right? As moderns, we're like, well, uh, society has been evolving and adapting, and uh, oh, just by coincidence, we're, the, we're at the end here, so we're the best society, and so we actually have the better understanding of Aiki. Uh, such is not true at all, okay? Which is why it's nearly absent uh, entirely from contemporary Aikido. Continuing on. I've always played the long game, so to speak, when it comes to training and teaching, and this is especially the case for folks not training directly with me. So I'm afraid one has to take the deep dive and check out all these materials if they want to understand truly what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, even if this blog entry appears to be all-encompassing, because it's not. In our latest Gateway Aikido video, the one on Kokuho or Kokudosa, which is a series I started for a Facebook friend, I gave what I would call a very important map for understanding one's Aikido training. There, I mentioned that training has three primary components, the physical component, the energetic component, and what I'm calling the spiritual component, but textually, historically, they would call it either the mind or the heart mind. Uh, again, I'm not making this up. If you go to the textual record, you're going to see that this yin-yang theory uh, was considered a wisdom tradition, and they developed practices and gave birth to institutions wherein that wisdom tradition was further evolved, those practices were further developed, and the what you're going to see is that they use this concentric breakdown of those practices, and that is firmly in place when you look at what, I, what O Sensei said and did and how he said and did it. He is still working with an ancient East Asian um, uh, pedagogy here. So your training has these three levels, 
but these three levels are understood uh, first and foremost through yin-yang theory. Again, the physical, the energetic, and then what I am calling the spiritual. I call it the spiritual only because to call it mind for a modern harkens us back to uh, psychoanalysis and the birth of psychology, and that is not what the pre-modern practitioners meant by mind. Um, in other words, mind is a metaphysical concept, um, but us moderns have come to believe that it's not a metaphysical concept, and that's why we spend so much time looking for it in the brain and or using chemicals to uh, balance out, again, the science doesn't support this, and those those re that research has come out recently. But because we don't understand mind, even the way that Jung and Freud used it, it was kind of still semi-metaphysical, especially in Jung's case. But over the course of the field of psychology developing for us moderns, we no longer understand mind as a metaphysical concept. But that is exactly how the pre-modern people used it. For example, I, I said it could be defined as heart-mind. Again, this is not brain and our cardiac muscle. These are metaphysical concepts, okay? And the closest that I feel a modern can get to it uh, is to just call it spiritual. You'll see other teachers will call it different things. I've heard it called uh, consciousness. Uh, and again, we have a different understanding of consciousness. Um, you'll see conversations, for example, uh, where uh, Deepak Chopra is taking pre-modern understandings of consciousness and he's trying to have debates with scientists and there's an entirely different understanding of what is consciousness in, um, in a scientific paradigm. So this is, in my opinion, the best way of getting a modern in the ballpark. So I'll continue on and it'll become clear as I read through more. I also mentioned that these components are concentric to each other. In that explanation, I discussed that therein a reconciliation or an integration of the two elements that make up each component must occur. Here, using two examples from that talk to remind the reader of the explanation in the video, the ego tripartite mind and the God mind must be reconciled at the spiritual component and yin and yang must be reconciled at the energetic component, etc. So let's stop there for a little bit. So I already mentioned the yin and yang um, reconciliation effort, okay? But because there's these three parts of our being, right? The spiritual part, the energetic part, and the physical part of our being. Um, let me kind of deviate here. If you go back in history again, you're going to find, you will find different traditions that will now add subparts to those three parts. Uh, and they'll all have different numerical elements to it. So like for the spiritual component, there might be 108 parts. Um, and for the physical component, there might be 64 parts. Again, I am simplifying it um, and I do that because I'm not an academic. I'm not interested in replicating a, a, an 
and reifying an institution so that it continues to survive into the future. Uh, my goal is practicality. So I'm going to uh, expedite things by simplifying things so that you can use the information that is being transmitted to you. So I leave it at these three things, okay? Um, I already mentioned the, the yin and yang reconciliation here, but or prior to this part, but in this part right here, I mentioned that the spiritual part, you have another dualism that you're trying to reconcile, and I again use my terms. So my terms are the ego tripartite mind, and you have to join us in the deep dive to see exactly what that means. But here I will note it is a radical simplification of what these traditions across history have said goes into what I call the ego tripartite mind. Um, so, for example, if you take uh, a Buddhist construct of mind or heart-mind, uh, you're going to have ooh, just lists and lists and lists and lists. It just goes on and on and on. And they become, in a way, a fetish for the practitioner. And people become list specialists. And in some way, it pulls the practitioner away from the ultimate goal of moving past dichotomy. It actually drowns them in dichotomy. So hence my reasoning, just keep it simple expedite the understanding process and move forward uh, by releasing and letting go of the uh, the language you had to use to get your foot in the door, so to speak. So I simplify it with the ego tripartite and then with something I call the God mind. But here it is that apophatic sense of God. So when I say the God mind, I am in essence, it's a negative concept. What mind is it? It is the mind that is not the ego tripartite mind. Okay, this is something. If you if you are a, a, even let's say you're a cursory historian of Budo, you would eventually have read the uh, the translation, the Unfettered Mind, uh, by Takuan Soho, and. Uh, that book, I'll give you an example of how not understanding this apophatically leads to all kinds of problems. So in there, you have um, a Zen uh, author, Zen thinker, and he's writing to a fencing instructor. And he might use the, the, the phrase mushin. And a modern who doesn't know the history or doesn't know um, the discourse uh, of Buddhism would look at Mushin and they're going to uh, define it by kanji character. This is this is extremely common in people claiming or wanting to have some historical support for their ideas of Aikido. So strangely, they're they're going to want some historical authenticity, but they don't do the history. They just get out a kanji dictionary and they go, oh, the first character mu means it's a negative, so it means like un. And then shin, okay, dictionary defined it as mind. And then they go ahead and use their modern psychological theory of mind, their, their post-Freudian, post-Jungian concept of mind. And so then they'll go, oh, this is no mind. But what you have to do instead is you got to take a deep dive and you got to figure out what for Takuan was the mind. 
And you're going to have to dive deep into that Buddhist breakdown of what the heck the mind is. And you're going to get lost in all those lists. It's, it's all these things, and those things are all these things, and all of those things are actually these things. And it's list after list after list after list. And now you're further away from using what he wanted. You're actually deeper in what he's saying uh, we should not be in. You're deep in the list. You're deep in dichotomy. Okay. So no mind, if, if I were to define no mind, I would say it's the God mind. Or the no mind is the mind that is not the ego tripartite mind. Those, all, those mean the same thing. And they're, they're way more... Uh, they're way more accurate historically, and they're way more usable for the modern practitioner than to say no mind, because usually, and this happened in, in the, the 1600s and the 1700s, following writers like Takuan, uh, Zen had to, had to reel in all the people that started acting like idiots and fools and stuff, because they did not have that training, they did not have that background, and when they read Mushin, they read, hey, act like you're an idiot or, or a jackass. And you'll see uh, critiques of other Zen masters on how that's a radical misunderstanding of what Mushin means. Here I'll elaborate a little bit on the yin and yang. Um, when we talk about an energetic component as we are now, it's not, um, it's going to be probably better said to call it an alchemy. It's an, it's an energetic alchemy that you're trying to do in your body. And this is, this is huge. Um, this is very, very necessary to understand something like Kihon Waza. There are really rituals that are working along these three breakdowns, so the spiritual, the energetic, and the physical. Um, but when we talk about the energetic, it connects Kihon Waza back to those pre-modern and even up to ancient alchemical practices that were existing in East Asian culture as yin-yang theory was being developed. So keeping that in mind, we'll keep reading. In elaborating on this point, I also drew a two-dimensional spectrum for understanding this reconciliation. Like, what did I mean by that phrase? Using the energetic component. Therein, I pointed to or made reference to the middle of the spectrum, whereat yin and yang are so perfectly balanced that their dichotomy is completely reconciled and where, where they are completely and fully co-integrated within each other, wherein their dichotomy between them ceases to exist. While not mentioning it here specifically, but saying it here, this reconciliation and this ceasing of dichotomy alone is Aiki. Again, that's how we preface this blog reading. Okay, that is what Aiki is. It's not something else. It, it, it is that ultimate reconciliation, or to tie it into other podcasts, it, um, it is Nagarjuna's tetralemma. It is the wiping away uh, of everything, but also the inclusion of everything. So it, it is X, it is not X, it is both X and not X, and it is neither X nor not X.
Okay, that, that is what these pre-modern traditions are getting at. And that reconciliation will manifest at three levels in our being, at our spiritual level, at our energetic or alchemical level, and at our physical level. And so our practice will have that same thing. Our practice will manifest Aiki, or this ultimate reconciliation of dichotomy, spiritually, alchemically, or energetically, and also physically. Continuing on. If one plugs this understanding of reconciliation back into all three components, the spiritual, the energetic, and the physical, one will see that Aiki is the reconciliation of the dichotomy between the ego-tripartite mind and the God-mind at the spiritual component, the reconciliation of the dichotomy between yin and yang at the energetic component, and the reconciliation of the dichotomy between all material dichotomies at the physical component, such as nage, uke, offense, defense, push, pull, mind, body, thought, action, etc. As was said in the video, and I'll post a link to that video so the person that didn't see it can see it now. As was said in the video, because these components are concentric to each other, traditional understandings of this map tend to hold that while the spiritual component is the source for all other components, a reconciliation at the physical component can lead to a reconciliation at the energetic component and a reconciliation of the energetic component can lead to a reconciliation of the spiritual component. Let's stop there. Okay, so what these traditions are saying, because they, these components are concentric uh, to each other, uh, one, can, one will manifest the other, or the other two, and by default, then, one can lead to the reconciliation occurring at the other two levels, regardless of where you start, okay? Um, so first, let's, some people might not be following what the heck we may, meant by concentric. Um, so one of the things that I studied in, in my graduate school and my doctorate program was the history of thought. Uh, and the basic assumption here is that the way human beings think changes over time, just like uh, culture changes over time. Thought itself is not some sort of objective process that happens outside of a culture or outside of a history. So pre-modern thought, and in particular e this kind of East Asian mystical thought, was based in what we call a concentric epistemy. That, that word epistemy is from the word epistemology. The, the, a theory of knowledge, okay? What pre-modern East Asian thinking did was look at the world. They developed their yin-yang theory, and there's no point in developing a cosmological theory if it did not contain therein the totality of the cosmos. So as was mentioned already, there is the Tao, then it manifests into yin and yang, and yin and yang goes on to become the 10,000 myriad things. Well, that whole process is just being replicated concentrically at each level of existence. Uh, analogy that I've often used is think about Russian stacking dolls. 
inside of the larger doll is the exact smaller doll. And it goes on and on and on. In this case, just imagine it goes on ad infinitum. Uh, some common expressions to help get you in the ballpark is uh, an expression of uh, so above, so below. But you would, in, in this kind of thinking, you'd also include in there so within, so without. Okay. So, for example, in our martial art, um, you can't, if, if you totally uh, reconcile the physical dichotomies of nage, uke, offense, defense, push, pull, mind, body, thought, action, etc., you would concentrically also have to reconcile energetically or alchemically yin and yang. And if you reconcile those two areas because those two components are concentric with the spiritual component, you would also have to have had to reconcile the ego tripartite mind with the God mind. Okay? That's what this paragraph is saying. If you look at, for example, that common, that ubiquitous yang-yang clash where Uke throws the Yokomenuchi and Nage blocks, you see uh, the lack of reconciliation along the three components. So at the physical level, you have a Nage Uke, an attack and a defense, and you have the block. The block is in uh, contrast to the strike. At the energetic level, you have yang and yang. You don't have a reconciliation of yin and yang. And then at the spiritual level, you still have the egoic mind or the ego tripartite mind fully functioning. There's no God mind uh, being utilized in that technique. So you'll usually see like uh, there's a presence of fear or a will to power because these are the behavioral manifestations of the ego tripartite mind. The, the nage is not in, uh, colloquially, in the zazen state, so to speak. They're not doing moving zen. They're just doing whatever that is. I don't even know what that mess is, but it's not right. Continuing on. Also stated in the video, this, however, was not my experience, neither in life or training nor in historical research. So I get theoretically that if I learn to reconcile physically, I'll be reconciling alchemically or energetically. Or if I learn to reconcile alchemically or energetically, I will have reconciled the dichotomous components at the spiritual. I get theoretically that it should be possible. What I'm saying here, that has not been my experience, whether if I looked at myself or I looked at other people uh, or even in my research. So um, I'll, I'll, I don't want to mention names, but I fall into this package too. Uh, it's just I don't really preach that you should try to do it physically or alchemically first. My, my experience is you have to do this spiritually first. Um, and then from there, you can start reconciling energetically or alchemically and then physically. 
Um, but I do know teachers who will quite firmly tell you uh, you can do it the other way. You can go physically and especially alchemically. So you're going to go alchemically. You're going to learn how to reconcile yin and yang alchemically or energetically, and then it will reconcile your um, your two minds at the spiritual level. But if you pay attention to their own um, biography, their own history, you're going to see that they had radical um, mind experiences uh, way before they started talking like that. Uh, and the same thing happened with me. Um, I find it that while concentric in nature, just like yin and yang emanated from the Tao, here the energetic, alchemical, and the physical, it will emanate from the spiritual reconciliation. It doesn't really go the other way, although I get historically or philosophically it's supposed to be able to. Okay, I can only talk about what I know, what I've experienced, and but I grant its possibility, okay? An example of this, so let's say, for example, um, you're doing a, a, you're doing a standing solo drill. So you're doing a standing solo drill, and what you're trying to do, or, or let's, let's, let's keep it um, more towards something more common. And so let's say you're doing Zazen. Okay, you're, you're doing Zazen, and uh, you have a posture, and you have uh, a mudra that you're working with, and you have ritual prescriptions, so silence and stillness. And uh, what happens is um, you have that physical component, silence and stillness, and you have an energetic alchemical component. Now, I'll grant that many people that do Zazen today do not understand the alchemical practice in Zazen, but as you are using part of your tissue to maintain your uprightness, you will push on, you will, you will, you will generate an energy expansion upward. That energy expansion upward will generate a reaction of the yang chi. That yang chi will push back on you. Now that yang chi is entering into your being from the top. As you internalize it and you press it back on the earth, it comes up, it meets it, it, it transitions into yin chi, earth chi, and it meets the continuing pressing yang chi. Okay, so this generates in your body alchemically the tanden field at the lower tanden, and this is why that hand mudra is placed at that part in your body. You want it in the lower tanden. Okay, so that's the alchemical component or the energetic component of zazen. But at the spiritual component level or the mind component level, what you're trying to do is uh, bring a cessation to the dominance of the ego tripartite mind. When you bring that cessation to the dominance of the ego tripartite mind, the God mind manifests itself. Well, here's the thing. If the God mind does not manifest itself, 
you will not be able to internalize the yang chi coming, pressing back on you from using Taoist poetics from heaven. It doesn't come into your body, which makes the alchemical manifestation of the Tanden field where heaven and earth chi are reconciling, it makes it impossible, which ultimately makes the dichotomy between silence and stillness, right, and its opposite, movement and volume, do you see, makes it impossible. You, you can't do it. You just try to stay still. And the movement in the effort to try to stay still is contrary to that stillness. You're just in dichotomy. The same thing goes for uh, even you're trying to do kihon waza, do you see? And kihon waza is concentric with all of these things. Your kihon waza will have a physical component, an alchemical component, and a spiritual component. And at the energetic level, or the alchemical level, you're going to have this reconciliation between kokyu, uh, between kokyu, right? The two kinds of kokyu, yin kokyu and, and yang kokyu. And that's going to generate aiki. At the physical level, and we'll read this eventually, it's going to manifest in what we would call non-contestation. Because the ultimate form of non-contestation is a reconciliation of all dichotomy. Yielding, in other words, going in the same direction as the uke is pressing is not the ultimate form of reconciliation. That's the domination of yang. But in order to get to the alchemical line in the yin-yang symbol, in order to get to aiki, I need to have brought a cessation to the ego tripartite mind. If I don't, what happens? The ego tripartite mind is functioning it functions through fear, dichotomy, and a will to power. And my Aikido, therefore, manifests yang-yang clashes over and over. Or retreating, these kind of yin retreating moves. I don't truly have non-contestation. The person who cannot bring a cessation to the domination of their ego tripartite mind always moves and experiences the world through those things, through fear, dichotomy, and a will to power. And the art, therefore, even in Kihon Waza, in the controlled environment of the dojo, manifests accordingly, according to that. So my, my experience is the spiritual component tends to come first. So we'll continue on. Instead, I would hold the energetic and, phys and the physical components rather than a means towards reconciling the spiritual elements are to be used to increase the quality of the spiritual component reconciliation in terms of access, by which I mean agency over time, and in terms of maintenance, by which I mean agency over environment or incident. And th again, this is my experience. So uh, you're... Your, um, the cessation of the ego tripartite mind 
it, it can be brought about, you know, out of the blue for no reason, spontaneously, totally out of our control. And what we want to do as we become skilled in our practice is actually bring agency to that. So both in terms, as I said here, agency over time and agency over environment. And your continuing development of your practice energetically or alchemically and physically help develop and bring that agency to the spiritual component reconciliation. Meaning, for example, let's say I have an a, a outer body experience, okay, a near-death experience, and I experience the world in that moment not from my everyday consciousness, not from my ego tripartite mind. I'm more of, a, of an observer of this out-of-body uh, near-death experience, okay? Or, as you see nowadays, as people are, are more and more, it's in vogue, kind of like jujitsu's in vogue, it, people are starting to experiment with psychedelics, and they'll have that kind of experience, okay? You, you in that moment, you have brought or you have experienced a cessation of the ego tripartite mind. You realize or you experience the oneness that is the reality when that mind stops dominating our experience of reality. But there is no agency to it. It's, it's useless. It's, it is. What these cultures... And what these wisdom traditions do is they note, in a way, the psychological or the physiological possibility of the ego tripartite mind ceasing in its dominance of how we experience the world. Like, obviously, that's possible. But what they go on to do is train and cultivate us towards what? Towards an agency in generating that cessation of that mind. And how do you do that? You can do it alchemically, and you can do it physically. So for the listener here, my experience is that is why you have the energetic components. That is why you have the physical component. And why they are important and why people that already had that cessation experience of the ego tripartite mind tout their importance, why they do that, and why they continue training in the energetic alchemical component and the physical component. Because it's, it's more usable now. They bring more agency to when and how and under what conditions they can bring a cessation to the ego tripartite mind. Continuing on. As the three components are concentric to each other, aiki, or the reconciliation within each component, is also concentric to each other. This makes the means of reconciliation, aiki, identical along the three components. That means is the skill that means what is that means? That means is the skill of releasing. Okay, so again, this is poetics. This what I mean, this is upaya. Just like I use the word spiritual instead of heart-mind, okay? It's an upaya for modern people. 
It's, it's, you can't take these things literally. That's the ego tripartite trap. That mind's got you. You're going to get lost in the list, okay? This is, this is a pointer that tends to work for more people than not, meaning it will not trap you. You will not make a fetish out of it but it gets you oriented in the right direction because every training, every means is simultaneously a trap from this reconciliation because every means, every training device is dichotomously based. This is why I've said many times, form is the ultimate obstacle. You see people, all they want to do is learn more form. They want to learn this weapon set. They want to learn this solo practice. They want to learn this energetic alchemical ritual, do you see? And they just want to collect forms. And they make a fetish out of it. So we're going to give you this belt, which stands for how many forms you collected. And now we'll give you this title, which stands for how many forms you collected but you're moving in the wrong direction. You got trapped. That's what the ego tripartite mind does. It traps you in dichotomy. It traps you in delusion. It traps you in ignorance. None of that is real. So it's always a precarious thing when a teacher comes up with the means. Your means should be there's a few things I feel every means should be. Like, uh, you should simultaneously tell people this is bullshit. What I'm telling you right now is bullshit. Even I'm lying to you right now. Next, it should be as simple as possible. You don't want to lead people into the list. When, when Buddhism and Taoism eventually formulated these lists, these are corruptions of these wisdom traditions. These are not further, deeper, expanded upon understandings of these traditions. These are corruptions of them. And herein I would include all of O Sensei's correspondences. This is leads people astray. He should have known better. So when we talk about, here you are, you're in a physical component, so you're doing your, your ji waza or your kihon waza. Or you're trying to do your zazen, right? And you're trying to focus in on bringing a cessation to that ego tripartite mind. Or you're doing some kind of standing uh, alchemical or seated alchemical ritual, right? And you're trying to let the parts of your body that are supposed to rise upward to generate the, the yang chi and the parts of your body that are supposed to drop downward to generate the yin chi. Do you see? You're trying to do these things. Your mind bounces back and forth between the two dichotomies. That's what happens. And the skill to stop the bouncing back and forth, we call the skill of releasing. It's non-attachment, detachment, but it's not apathy. It's just letting go, opening your hand, dropping it, 
These are all poetics, do you see? It's not what actually happens. You can't drop the self. You can't hold the self in your hand, but you can metaphorically, poetically, not let go of the self. So we say releasing. That's the skill we're seeking. When we're talking about agency, agency in bringing a cessation to the ego tripartite mind, agency over time, that means I can, I can stop its dominance for as long as I want to, or agency over environment. I can stop its dominance regardless of how intense my current conditions are. Conditions that make me want to not let go of the ego tripartite mind. When we're talking about agency, we're talking about the development of a skill. What skill? The skill of releasing. That's what we mean here. This is the means to that agency. This is the means to Aiki. If you look thereby at all your practices, while you might want to understand them as components, as we have up to this point, all of your practices are really the cultivation of the skill of releasing. When you're doing kihon waza, in other words, your main goal is to develop the skill in releasing. So your kihon waza is going to set up an environment wherein it is more difficult to release than not to release. This is how you train in something. You create a stressor to generate a need for an adaptation. So the uke comes in, do you see? And we do, we want to stop that strike. We want to stop Yokomanuchi. We're going to block that strike so it doesn't hit us in the head. But you have to release all the things, all the energetic things, all the ego tripartite mind elements to release all that went into manifesting that action as the only course of action you could take. You want to change reality as you're experiencing it. What, what, how, what? You want to return to the Tao. You want to experience reality as returning to the Tao. Beyond dichotomy. And to do that, you have to release. Your training environment is designed to start with attachment. Then you release. This is why the choreography model is just off the table. There's no need to develop the skill of release because every attachment potential has been taken out. There's no stressor. There's no consequences for lacking the adaptation of releasing. So I go to block the Yoko Menuchi, and there's no stressor for it. There's no, there's no stress to it, and there's no consequences for continuing to be attached to the dichotomy that sets up that course of action. Meaning, for example, the tiniest of women does exactly that strike, exactly like the largest of males. 
But she has no means of stopping that strike like that. Or the unarmed person does that thing, that strike, exactly like an unarmed person. It doesn't matter. But you try to stop a knife like that, your arm's going to get checked, cut, and then we're going to cut your throat. There's, there's no ability for success. But in the choreographed ukemi, the stress is taken out. The need for the adaptation is taken out, and the consequences for not adapting are also taken out. So there's no cultivation in releasing. And this is why modern Aikido is just not spiritual. It's not spiritual. It's not alchemical. It's not martial. It fails across all three concentric components. This is why, in, in essence, it's exercise. And this is why it's not consistent with its own history. Continuing on. The skill of releasing that is being cultivated for quality, as mentioned above. So again, I'm talking about agency over time and agency over environment. Via the energetic and physical components. That's what we're talking about. It's a skill of releasing at all three component level. This in turn holds that Aiki is receptive in nature, meaning Aiki is less something you do and more something happening to you. For example, using the spiritual component, one cannot seek a balance between the egoic mind and the God mind, and nor can one seek access to the God mind to achieve the aforementioned reconciliation between the two minds. Such seeking is merely a continuation of the egoic mind functioning and is, and therefore, in dominance to the God mind. Rather, a person skilled in releasing releases from the egoic mind, bringing a cessation to its functioning and dominance, and it is this in turn that has the gateway to the God mind open. One does not open the God mind the God-mind opens of its own accord via the skill of releasing used to bring a cessation of the egoic mind. All right, this, again, this might be confusing. Give me some time here to explain. Your will as your intellect, your will to power, your desire is all part of the egoic mind functioning, all part of the structure of the ego tripartite mind. This is why across mystical traditions, across history and across cultures, this communion with this apophatic represented sense of things, so the Tao, is not something you can will or desire or aim for. So, for example, let's take Aiki. And we know, if you've been following it here, that Aiki in Kihonwaza or in Jiuwaza will manifest as, it, as, as 
as a communion, right, between yin and yang or a reconciliation between yin and yang, or better said, an absence of dichotomy between yin and yang, Aiki will physically manifest as an adhesion. So let's say I have my arm and I have Uke's arm. At the point of contact between those two arms, because there is neither yin nor yang, the energetic manifestation will be an adhesion or an inability to disconnect and become two arms again. They get stuck to each other. So I call that that stickiness, that stuckness, adhesion. That is Aiki at a visible, physical level, but it's taking place energetically. I cannot try for that. If I try for that, I'll always be positive yin, positive yang, and I will always manifest one or the other because of the concentric nature between the energetic component and the spiritual component. As I try to do one or the other, the ego tripartite mind stays dominant at the spiritual component level. You manifest the adhesion by releasing from the ego tripartite mind functioning. By the releasing from both Kokyu and Aiki. And then the adhesion or the communion manifests on its own accord. I was not the agency, agent of that. It manifests of its own accord. Likewise, I cannot will or seek or desire for the God mind because the God mind is the cessation of the ego tripartite mind. And will and desire and seeking is nothing but the continued domination of the ego tripartite mind. What instead I do is I release myself from the functioning of the ego tripartite mind. I develop the skill in releasing. And when I release, the God mind manifests itself. At a spiritual level, this is very, very difficult for moderns to understand because spiritual cultivation today has become part of, in essence, the wellness industry. And it has adopted, as I said, a kind of materialistic sense of mind that, it, that has evolved as the psychiatric field has, has evolved. So we have adopted a kind of a mechanical sense of our spirituality. The notion that something is out of our control and there's nothing I can do about it, what pre-modern cultures would call the mystery, what they were pointing at in their apophatic terms, in saying something is unknowable, unnameable, like God, like the Tao. That's just terrifying to us moderns. So we come to training, and rather than learning the skill of releasing, we keep trying to control things. 
we keep using our desires and our desires are based in fear and the fear is at the structural heart of the ego tripartite mind love is at the heart of the god mind I do not manifest love. Love manifests me. So take this to our art. I'm doing Jiyuwaza. What do we usually see? People just pick techniques quickly. That's what Jiyuwaza is to them. Or they simplify the list of techniques. They'll do like three. They'll do three responses to what Uke is doing. This is not Jiyuwaza. This is just picking forms. This is still attachment to form. This is still abiding in form. This is still dichotomous being. This is still the ego tripartite functioning. And the second I desire to do something, or the second I try to do something, then I simultaneously manifest me and Uke what I want and what Uke is doing. And at the energetic component, of course, I manifest yin and yang. There's no aiki in kokyu. And again, we have to take off the table the choreographed bullshit that is dominating our art. That's not aiki in kokyu. That's what it's become in the ignorance of these things we're talking about here. But it has no textual evidence and it has no practical outcome. To do Jiyuwaza is to let the technique manifest itself without me. In the book I mentioned already by Taco on Soho, in his first letter, the one where he's talking about the mind, where he mentions Mushin, and he's writing to the fencing master. This is, in essence, the summary of that letter. You put your will, your desire, your fear, your intention into how to respond to the enemy's sword. You'll be taken by the sword. Your technique will not flow freely. Same exact message. So this is very, very difficult. Which is why I think most people just stumble across a cessation of the ego tripartite mind. I think everyone I know, even as I said, modern teachers today, They'll tell you all, they'll tell you the philosophy, but when you look at it, oh, dude, you had like two or three near-death experiences. Very prominent teachers selling everything. Continuing on. At the energetic level, the spiritual reconciliation mentioned above opens the gateway to the internal field allowing yin and yang values to pass through the human body as it is centered between heaven, the immaterial, and earth, the material. As before, access to this internal field cannot be done actively, and nor can a balancing of yin and yang within the field be done actively. 
Such agency, which is always a manifestation of fear or desire, will close the God-mind gate, which will in turn close the internal energetic field gate, etc. Instead, one simply releases. The gateway to the internal field opens on its own accord. While in said releasing state, yin and yang values reconcile themselves and aiki happens to the practitioner. To the modern mind, which is the ego tripartite mind running unchecked and unaware of itself, which is most minds practicing Aikido today, this all sounds airy and impractical and likely even impossible and irrelevant. This is especially so among the martialists within our community. However, there are very real very concrete, very practical real-world effects from such cultivation. And this is especially so martially speaking. Speaking martially only then, now, a reconciliation at the spiritual component produces an unfettered mind free of fear. This is a reference right to Takon Soho. This mind is the only mind capable of not vapor-locking under the stress and pressure of human versus human violence. This mind is also the only mind that can flow within the dynamic and infinite nature of human versus human violence. And thus, it is the mind of spontaneity and awareness. It is the mind of Takamusu Aiki, the mind without which all martial arts training for human versus human violence is useless and pointless. Okay, so this sounds like deeply philosophical stuff and somebody who's interested in Aikido is just self-defense. They're going to go, this is bullshit, this is why the art sucks, etc., etc. But again, these pre-modern traditions, didn't, they had a concentric understanding of the training components. So you had the spiritual, the energetic, or the alchemical, and the physical the physical is where the martial would be contained therein. You would not come up with a martial truth that contradicted the truths present at the energetic or the spiritual component. It's impossible. It would be like today, we have all our theories on aerodynamics and somebody's going to come up with a, a, an aircraft that is 100% contradicting every one of those theories involving aerodynamics. That's not how it happens. Once a culture has a truth, they use the truth to manifest the truth more. No one, no one ever has a truth and then makes something false. So here... They have the truth of yin-yang theory. You can see it running through the components. You would never have a martial art that would not equally be consistent with yin-yang theory. And because yin-yang theory includes so above, so below, so within, so without, you're going to have to address the mind. For you martialists, you're going to have to get airy. Again, why can you not be airy 
is because you're not really you're not really in the business of human versus human violence. Not for real. You sell it, you sell it to people that are thoroughly victim to their ego tripartite mind. You market off their fear. But those people aren't really in the profession of human versus human violence. Because when you do, when you're in the profession of human versus human violence, you quickly realize if we don't get the minds right, it doesn't matter what we teach people. People go conditioned black, and if you're in the field, you know what that means. And it doesn't matter what you teach them. They can't do any of it. You have to train the mind. And that's what the pre-moderns did. It's not a separate topic from training. It has become, but that really explains more why Aikido is not martial, even amongst the martialists. Their dichotomy between spiritual Aikido and martial Aikido is a modern ignorance. Continuing on. At the energetic component, a reconciliation here allows one to conjoin and or enhance one's mechanical engines, such as leverage, ballistics, etc., energetically, such as koku projection or aiki adhesion, which increases one's work output potential and the ability to overcome greater resistant values. This in turn allows one to fight above his or her weight class, which is a vital aspect of all self-defense concerns. So again, going to the martialist, the martialist will say, they'll look at, let's say, I can't, I can't point to any Aikido people, and let me not point to myself here, but the martialist would look at a Tai Chi person who's doing Fa Jin and doing some sticking and adhering, Kokyu and Aiki, do you see? And they'll go, this is a waste of time, this is total bullshit. But if you look at their fighting architectures, they always imagine themselves bigger, stronger, having the more resilient mind, better armed. But this is a violation of predator equations. Predators don't pick people like that. The lion can kill any zebra in the herd, but the lion kills the young, the old, and the injured. So do your human predators. But what do you see? The, the Nage always maintains their space. They always use contestation, do you see? They always assume they're going to hit them and it's going to knock out the opponent. None of that is true. You're going to get displaced. You're not going to stand where you want to stand. Your strikes are going to bounce off people. Some of these martialists don't even use weapons. They don't even carry them. But the predators do. This is not self-defense. This is modern consumerism. 
again, capitalizing upon the fear which functions at the heart of the ego tripartite mind. If you realize that your predator is going to be better than you in any way, in every way, you're going to want to do jujitsu proper. You're going to want to practice non-contestation at a physical level. And you're going to appreciate the fractions of a second and the fractions of an inch that you can capitalize upon via the internal aspects of the art. These internal aspects, these energetic component elements, they define what is martial. That's why they were developed by pre-modern cultures. Again, as the spiritual component is not antithetical to the martial component, the energetic component is not antithetical to the martial component. As I said, they allow you to have more efficient engines, meaning you can generate more or higher power output values with a smaller use of resources. That's vital. Continuing on. A reconciliation at the physical component is what allows for the ultimate martial strategy of non-contestation, jujitsu. To be embodied tactically, contrast these reconciliations with what the martialists are pushing today as a product of their modern egoic mind. That is the delusion that the one-to-one plug-and-play fetishization of technique solves in and of itself for spontaneous, unfuttered, aware, fearless mind. It doesn't. You're not going to be able to use a technique to get you out of the crap. You need to do what the pre-moderns did. You got to develop that unfettered mind. It has an energetic or alchemical manifestation with Kokyu and hiking, and it has a physical manifestation with non-contestation. If we don't have that going on with the piece, just physically being stronger than your attacker and assuming such to always be the case, in other words, contest, does not work. What a joke. Nothing could be more unmartial than these three positions that hold these three components in contrast to martial viability. At a spiritual level, these components and their reconciliations also have practical real-world effects. They're not airy, in other words. This can be talked about here because Aikido today suffers a lack of viability both martially and spiritually for all the reasons I've given up to now. And the source for such impotency is the same, ignorance of the above mentioned. Therefore, I would like to provide the reader with real-world, easy, easily observable signs of this level of training and of this type of training to point out that the above is not as airy as one may think. This list is not exhaustive. 
Okay, so what I want to do here is we, we, have a, we have a meaning crisis, okay? Everyone is trying to say something different for, for Ike. But as I said, there's a historical record. The reason why everyone is saying it's something different is because there's no historians out there. Again, I'm not interested in becoming, again, an academic. I know the history. I'm telling you, if you want to know the history, go look it up yourself. It's out there. Stop believing all these modern people. You could use all the little names and hints and concepts that I've dropped that you've listened to or you read. Those could be pointers. Just don't get trapped by all the words, by the discourse. Be mindful. That's going to lead you astray. All you really need is some freedom from the traps already in place so that you can then develop your skill in releasing. You could then organize your practice along the lines you hear me mentioning today. So here we're going to list real-world things. This is not, these are not airy things. Regardless of how many crazy definitions we have for Aiki, you now knowing philosophically, historically, what Aiki is, that reconciliation between dichotomies, dichotomous elements, a return poetically, in other words, a return to the Tao, that line between the yin and yang in the yin-yang symbol. Nargarjuna's tetralemma manifested. These are real-world, easily observable things that they're either there or they're not there. And this is how you can tell whether someone's definition and skill is authentic or not. So at the spiritual component, here they are. Emotional stability. You're talking about an absence of depression and anxiety and an absence of reactive behavior because that is structurally where we end up when the ego tripartite mind is dominating us. You see in there the dichotomous elements of depression and anxiety you see in there the me versus them. That's our reactive behavior. When you take away those things, what should you see? You should see a person having thriving relationships. In particular, with one's children, parents, and spouses. You should also see a non-attachment to secular materialism. This is because as the I manifests itself through the ego tripartite mind, it contrasts the other. The other is manifested. And this kickstarts the will to power. And this explains Americans' obsession with material goods and the collection of material goods. 
and the simultaneous increase in bipolar disorder and it continuing to get worse and worse and going younger and younger. You're not going to find a person who is not attached to material things, so they have no attachment to material things, but they're suffering bipolar disorder. It doesn't happen like that. You could see how, how much anxiety it causes our youth if they don't have this brand name or that brand name or they have to wear an off-brand name and the ensuing depression if they're judged by their peers who are already working with that functioning ego tripartite mind. Or you could see the emotional health in a young person who doesn't care what, doesn't even think about their shoes. These things all go together. You're going to see an absence of victim mentalities. Again, that's the, the me-other dichotomy. You can't be a victim if you don't have the me-other dichotomy functioning. You're going to see non-attachment to worldly coping mechanisms. These are like self-medication, alcohol drinking, drug using, at-risk behaviors, prescription medications, right? Because the world living in, the, in a me-other dichotomy with a fully functioning, out-of-control will to power, that is going to be one hostile experience of the world. I either get taken by the world or I learn to get numb to the world. And that's where you get those kind of medicating, coping, trying to make myself numb to the world, those behaviors. Back to our world here in Aikido, you're going to see if they've reconciled that spiritual component you're going to see non-attachment to federite mentalities, discourses, and institutions. So all those people online that first look at an Aikido, they see through a lens, an institutional lens. Is this practitioner Japanese? Are they male? Are they in my federation? What is their rank? Who is their teacher? Do they dress like me? Do they use the name I use for that technique? Then decide whether it is skilled or unskilled. You won't see that in somebody who has reconciled their spiritual components. You only see that in the fear-filled person in the sick and diseased mind, the person abiding in ignorance. That's who acts like that. It's a spiritual immaturity, by which we mean unreconciled minds. And then the last thing you'll see in a practitioner who has reconciled the spiritual components is takamusuaiki, real takamusuaiki, not picking techniques quickly. Again, if you look at Aikido today, along with suwariwaza, not money practicing it, 
you also don't see much Jiyuwaza. Or if you do, it's those few techniques being repeated over and over again. Or it is just picking techniques really quickly and having uke wait their turn to be uke. But in the reconciled mind, in the reconciled spiritual component level, you're going to see true Takamusa Aiki. Those are visible. If you don't see these things, if you don't see these thriving relationships with children, parents, spouses, if you don't see non-attachment to secular materialism, if you see a victim mentality, if you see a federite mentality, if you don't see Takamusa Aiki, this person does not know or do Aiki. At the energetic component, easily observable Aiki manifestations. Throwing architectures powered by a ground rebounding Kokyu projection. A rooted rear foot versus a rear foot moving through the throw, which is very common. And an absence of bracing angles in the stance. Okay, so let's, this is kokyu, this is describing kokyu. Why is this kokyu a manifestation uh, at the energetic level? Because this is an internalization. And as was mentioned in the Zazen example, Yang Chi cannot enter into my body for me to bounce it off the earth, generating earth chi, to establish the tanden field, the lower tanden field. None of that happens if I cannot internalize the yang chi. And when you do internalize the yang chi and you establish the tanden field where heaven and earth chi will reconcile each other, becoming indistinguishable from each other, you're going to see a kokyu projection. The person's going to bounce. They're going to boom, bounce off of the nage. In order to bounce them, you're going to see a rooted rear foot or a, rear, a rooted foot. Sometimes it's the front foot. What you won't see is a floating rear foot. You see that kind of, I call it ruddering. The, the modern Aikido, Aikidoka, well, they call it tenkan on every throw. That back foot is just moving across the mat. There's, there's no internal skill here. There's only two choices here. Uke's yang energy was not present per choreography or it was not internalized by nage. That's the only way you have that floating, ruddering foot. On the Aiki side, you'll see an adhesion of matter at the contact point generated by nage and not uke. Okay, so this is important because oftentimes the justification for the choreographed uke is that uke, uke, you need to maintain connection. You need to stick to nage. No, this is, this is fake. Nage generates the Aiki adhesion by releasing. Releasing from the Kokyu Aiki dichotomy 
The adhesion will manifest itself and Uke and Nage become one at the contact point. Nage, Uke cannot peel apart if they wanted to. That's the Aiki adhesion. And because you have the Kokyu and the Aiki, you don't need the choreographed Uke anymore. That's the, the last uh, evident, easily observable manifestation of Aiki. Because I have an outward or a projecting force that can be combined with an adhering force, all of the Aikido, Kiho, and Waza are now uh, possible without choreography. So if you see the Uke turning themselves, throwing themselves, moving into position, waiting for this next move or something. That is all choreography. And it is, in most part, for the most part now, unrecognizable to most uke, most aikidoka. They can't see anymore that it was the uke that turned their center here or left their center here or put their center there. But when you experience the art, with true internal skills, it doesn't matter where you, Uke, want your center to be. It's going where Naga's taking it. And this is something entirely different from what moderns call following or leading or connecting. Those are choreography. All right, easily observable Aiki at the physical component. You're going to see the tactical absence of pushing when pushed and pulling when pulled. Again, look at, look at people training. The, the reason you don't see this reactionary mode is because the, the me and the other dichotomy is gone at the spiritual level, and you won't see this reactionary mode uh, because at the energetic level, you're not working with pushing and pulling. You're working with projecting and adhering. So you're working with separation, but the separation was sourced by the uke, or you're working at communion. So there's no push or pull. You're also going to see a highly mobile, supple, strong body, regardless of age, and that is thicker in the midsection. This is just a byproduct of the training as Aikido generates these internal aspects. The other arts do it a little bit different. You tend not to, you could in those other arts, in my opinion, they're less, they're less common. Not, the general public's not exactly exposed to those arts, but it is possible they do generate this reconciliation energetically by other means you won't see the same thickness in the midsection but in aikido and in most of the internal arts you're going to see a thickness in the midsection it's a byproduct of this internal alchemy so the little skinny waist person i would start going well i don't think so they'd have to give me a lot more signs that's what i'm trying to say here okay but also, it's very, you have a highly mobile person. They're supple, they're strong, regardless of age. That's important. Because these traditions, these pre-modern traditions have noted, rightly so, 
that you could accomplish in many cases a lot of the same ends, martially speaking, through just being stronger by the other person. But as you age, you can't do it anymore. We see this all the time right now. A lot of these Japanese shihan who don't do any of the internal stuff, they're now older. They can't even take advantage of the Kihon Waza environment like they used to because they don't, they were just out muscling people. So they bounce off of people now. But you take someone like Tada Sensei, and please don't think there's a lot of them. He is definitely a rarity. Even at his age, he's using the internal skills mentioned above, and people still bounce off of him. Still, he still has kokyu. So we should see that. We, 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 you, you can't see a stiff body. You can't. It's impossible. Because the way alchemically, the way your tissues have to be to internalize the yang and yin chi into the tanden field, you can't be this stiffy. It's not, not possible. So you want to see, you can look at someone. Did that, did that dude walk out onto the mat like lurch? All right, turn the channel because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, continuing on. Um, at the physical level, again, easily observable. You'll see a power output above expected values for a given mass. So rather than looking at the giant nage who's throwing around this little tiny uke, you want to pay more attention to the smaller uh, nage who's just launching with kokyu. Um, Anuke across the mat. Same with effort. Like you'll watch it and you'll go, wow, it looks like the dude's barely trying, but that unchoreographed uke just went flying through the air. Okay, that is because the internal aspects are there. But it's also because the physical components are not contradicting the energy, the energetic components. And then this physical component practitioner is also going to use live training environments in their curriculum. They're, they don't have to avoid them. They actually prefer them. So as I tell my, my own students all the time, oh, I just, you know, I have to tell myself, oh, we got to do Kihonwaza. But my preference is, let's just do G-Waza. Let's just go. Let's just spar. Let's just roll. Just go. But I don't have, not all my student body is there. Right? Like, likewise, too, I'd rather do some energetic drills than the Kihon Waza, but then I have to remind myself that Kihon Waza is the energetic drills. You see, but it, they're, they're cultivating energetic drills. They're like low level to me. And so as you, you're trying to develop your skill more, you're trying to bring more agency to your skill of releasing. You're going to want more stressful environments so you produce greater adaptation. So I'll, I'll make up like crazy energetic drills to see, but then... Depends on who shows up to my class at night. I could have zero students being able to do it. And we're like, okay, we'll go back to the Kihon Waza, okay? But same thing with live training environments. That's going to dominate a lot 
of your overall curriculum. You're going to you're going to be doing live stuff a lot a lot. It's the opposite of what you tend to see. Where GUaza for example, even even that crazy understanding of GUaza now of you know, three to four techniques repeated over and over or fast thinking through techniques as your uke's weight. Even then, you'll only see it like once a month or something like that, and it's not very long. Like here we'll do whole classes. We keep coming back to it over and over and over. You know, my goal is always like, well, I'll be fair. I'll do some kihomwaza, but we'll probably shoot for at least half a GUwaza, half live training environments. All right, finishing this piece. Reader, guess my take on the stiff, overweight, muscling, emotionally reactive, divorced, having an estranged child that doesn't train in the art, federite that doesn't spar, floats his rear foot all over the mat, and that uses uke for, choreogra uh, for their choreography, choreographed skills, and forces newbies into position by sheer superior size or muscle, and holds that Aiki is just sound body mechanics, and Aikido Kihonwaza should be understood as a one-to-one -one plug and play self-defense response. Guess what I think of that? Yeah, I don't think very highly of that. I'll throw in here something too. I'm not a fan of the person that talks about Aiki, but never shows it. It's a very strange thing to me in this modern technological age. I'm not just talking about the possibility of a talker, not a walker. I'm just talking about the fear, the underlying fear that supports that position and not the position of, let me put myself out there regardless of what people think. Yeah, I was reading a post today, and it's like, this guy constantly talks about Aiki, and people don't know it, and some people know it. I've never once seen him move. And there's people listening to him. This is strange to me. Not interested. But if we take this concept of reconciling dichotomy, or at least of harmonizing yin and yang, and we come back to our bodies, or we come back to our spouses, or anything that's keeping us off the mat, or that's challenging us to be on the mat, it's nothing but another dichotomy that we either harmonize or ideally reconcile. So a thing that I often tell, let's say the worst case scenario of body requiring more rest, okay? And again, I don't think you need this unless you're training at a level where, where I have offered or suggested we should train. So if you're hitting like four to six hours a day or even six days a week, sooner or later, your body is going to speak up about that. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. So this physical fitness training is one of our four disciplines. The four disciplines are our modernized aesthetic elements that support this component 
these components and the reconciliation of the component elements at the spiritual, alchemical, and physical levels. We have these four disciplines. It's in its own podcast. But fitness is one of them, just to simplify. But the goal of an ascetic practice, here are the four disciplines, is to bring things onto the table that you thought were off of the table. Because the goal of Buddha as a way is to live it. And anything that you leave off the table is a sign you're not living Buddha. We're not after even the ability to train four to six hours a day, in essence, in some way. We're more after what four to six hours a day forces me to do with my life. So some of the things is first I would say here, take your time. Be patient. It's an orientation asceticism that we're trying to do here to trying to hedge you into putting more parts of your life into the art, into the practice. That's what Buddha as a way means. So be kind. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do stoppages and reversals and startings again. Okay, you have to allow for those things. But in all of that, what you're doing is putting that part of your life into your practice. That's the main goal of an ascetic element. So some of the things, so first thing then, allow yourself time. You have to have, it's going to take time. You can't, you can't just make changes like, you know, said and done. It doesn't happen like that. Because the ego tripartite mind has a homeostatic energy to it. It's going to push back on whatever you're trying to change. This is why people can drop weight and then put weight back on. The behavior pushed back. The ego tri tripartite mind pushed back on the attempted behavioral change. In a way, you have to figure out how to get rid of the dichotomy. That's the only way you can actually bring about a transformation, which is why these are ascetic practices. You have to find the way that behavior is currently supporting and being supported by your ego tripartite mind. But it can't, it's, this is not a psychoanalysis here. This is not some sort of thing. You, you just want to understand that there is a structural utilization of the behavior. And what you have to do is cultivate release. That's the only way you can end the behavior. And that takes time. So some of the things, just as examples, um, you know, from my life, and you, you, you could read about this on our website, you know, I'll go, I'll go back to where I first learned this, okay? So, as I mentioned before, when I was younger, I was an Olympic hopeful in two sports. And that was that as a youth, okay? So, I was in the youth ranks and being invited to the Olympic training camp. Then there's no there's no Olympic youth team. Do you, you understand? So they're like keeping an eye on hopefuls for when you get into the men's category. 
And uh, as I got into the men's category, um, there was a competitor that was showing mad improvements, mad gains. And my ego was going like, well, of course, of course he has those gains because he can train all day and I still have to try to get into a university so I can't neglect school and he's not going to school because he doesn't even care about it and he's not that smart. Can you hear all that ego reification going on there? Right? And there's the victim mentality, right? And even though I'm not, I don't have the gains, somehow I'm better. This all, that's a functioning of the ego tripartite mind. Well, eventually my ego got tired of not having the gains and being beat by this guy. So I was all like, yeah, I know it's my mom's fault because she won't let me not go to school. And for she, it's all her fault. There's the victim mentality, right? So I'm all, Mom, that's it. I'm not going to take a break from school. I'm going to dedicate myself to my Olympic dreams. So what's she going to do, right? She's going to push back. I'm, I'm out of here. So I moved out went and lived with my girlfriend. I'm not, I wasn't going to go to school. And now I set my schedule up because I don't have school. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what the pros are doing. The pros are training seven to eight hours a day. So I'm going to train seven to eight hours a day. And I did that first day, and I wake up the second day, and I'm like, I'm supposed to go out and start training. I, I got out of bed. I got in the shower, but I sat on the couch on the way out. I just can't get off the couch. I'm so exhausted. My girlfriend comes out and she's all, I thought you were going to go. And, you know, there goes my ego. Come on, man, support me. Support me. <laughs> oh, I get out and I start training, but I didn't do the full eight hours, right? Comes, comes, third, comes the next day, the third day. Oh, no. I'm not, I'm not getting out of bed. Now, I wasn't, a, a, again, I was in a total lost clause because I think a lot of people just get stuck there. What I, what I realized on this third day is it's not about time. It's not about free time. That's what the ego tells itself when it doesn't have free time. So I realized that there's a whole lot of self-releasing that goes into being able to train seven to eight hours a day. Now, I had the realization, do you see? But you can't put it into effect right away. You, you, it's still, there's still logistical issues or still practical issues, but you have the realization. But you're free of that egoic pushback, do you see? So you keep working on the logistical issues as you're going along. And over time, you get better and better at addressing the logistical issues. So in the late, in the mid-80s is when I dropped those two sports. I, I got super injured and that my hopeful dreams were gone. And then I took this 
mindset to martial arts. So now I'm training with that same, I had figured it out, right? I'm doing the martial arts. What did everyone else say around me? They did what I said. They were like, oh, you're, you get to train that much because you're a young male and um, you, all you have is school. So I ended up going back to university. You know, all you have is school. You wait till you get married or you wait till you have a girlfriend or whatever, you know. And then, of course, I get married. And then now the married people are like, you wait till you have kids. Okay, then I had kids. Uh, you wait till you're in graduate school and you're married and you have kids. Then I'm in graduate school, I'm married, and I have kids. I'm still working out like crazy because I had figured it out. I figured it out at the spiritual component level. Once you figure it out there, it's just logistics. And things that were thought to be impossible will become possible. They do take time. It's not immediate, but it's definitely not impossible. It also doesn't take forever because forever is impossible. But then, you know, the people that see me, married, kids, you're a graduate student, you wait till you have a real job. Then I got a real job and I'm still training that way. You wait till you do shift work. Then I'm doing shift work and I'm still training that way. You wait till you have more kids. You wait till you have pets. I'm still doing it. But it takes time. So some of the things that, I, that, that logistically I had to figure out is where is my ego in the support of the air quote here, impossibility. I notice I wasted a lot of time on me time. Again, if I reconcile my spiritual component, there is no me time and non-me time. Every minute of the day is both me and not me. Is neither me nor not me. Do you see the tetralemma? And I realized I got to figure out how to do that. And eventually, over time, I, I found more time in the day to, if not train, recover. That's huge. Because the other relevant of the four disciplines here, the other discipline, is sleep hygiene. Most of your recovery, and here you want to understand recovery spiritually, psychologically, and physically is done in and supported by a good sleep hygiene. To get you in the ballpark, you want to think eight to nine hours earlier in the night with a bedtime max of 10. You want to shoot somewhere between nine and 10 for going to sleep. And I use ballpark because the science is just not clear on this. What is clear that the whole I'm a night owl and that that's not true. That's all ego tripartite bullshit. But some people can get away with as little as seven. You don't get away with six. 
And seven, I would say in my experience, you, and this is what you have to do, you have to observe yourself, do you see? You have to tailor this stuff to you. So I could probably get away with seven, but four days of seven hours in a row, I start seeing negative repercussions on my releasing skill. So I try not to do that. I'll accept a seven here or there, but I try to shoot. Bedtime is, you know, nine, somewhere 10 max is pushing it. And then depending on the, on the day, uh, what else I have going on, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I try to wake up somewhere around 5.45 to get in uh, another hour of working out and stuff, addressing training before work. Weekends, oftentimes, weekends are mad recovery days, meaning you can't just expect yourself to train at that level without addressing the need for recovery. It's huge. And sleep will have the biggest impact on recovery. So on weekends, when I don't have work, like I'll try to, I'll wake up, I'll, uh, I'll still try to go to bed at the same time, try to sleep in an hour or two, and I'll take a nap again, and then, and then go to bed early again, trying to recover. Because even with all my experience, like I will get burnt out, and I can feel that. When I talk to most students about the importance of sleep hygiene, what you tend to see is they're not doing it. They're not utilizing it as part of the recovery rate for intense training. They're kind of just pushing it. You don't want to push it. You want to support it. That's how an asceticism becomes part of your way. And you want to do and assess and become aware of anything and everything that's negatively affecting your ability to support your physical requirements. So for example, in here, obviously I had kids and I'm doing shift work and the kids don't understand when they were little that dad is home, but dad is asleep and you can't come in and hang out with dad so it took like a long time to educate the children on when they could see dad but to do so in a way that is not negatively impacting my role and my relationships to them as father that's not an overnight process same thing went with my spouse which takes us to the next question. I posted earlier how uh, on another blog on women in Aikido that most dojo are men caves, man caves, right? Well, this doesn't make sense from Aikido being a wisdom tradition in relationships. The mat that is predominantly male is not a healthy mat. There is violations of yin-yang theory going on. So you can look at our mat. It's 50-50, but again, you know, I would say we're, we're been 50-50 a lot now, but sometimes it goes the other way. It even goes the other way here. And it's like only my two sons are here. 
and there's no men here. You know, I, I got to get back to, well, okay, where's the balance? What's happening? What's supporting this? But a mat that is predominantly male, it's a mat out of balance. It's a, it's a mat either not reconciling yin and yang, and, uh, right, of course, or it's definitely not harmonizing yin and yang. So to, to come to train and in some way contrasting your marriage with your training, that's, not, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. You're, you're fighting the uke. You're not going to get the technique. You have to figure out, again, at a minimum, how to harmonize, but better yet, how to reconcile. Right, so there's things, you know, I think what I've always done, I met my wife in 1986, is we would do this together. And um, I think that's the ideal way that you train together. And that you understand your marriage as one more relationship in which to practice the reconciliation of dichotomy. One more relationship in which you seek communion. But like the other ones I mentioned, the, the, the sleeping and the training one, you got to be kind to yourself. It's not a quick process. You're going to have false starts. You're going to have to go backwards. It's going to take time. The point is that you bring the relationship into the asceticism of Budo. That it's not outside of Budo. That would be like a yang-yang clash. Your goal here is to bring the training to the entirety of your life. A training that exists solely on the mat is not Budo. It's not Aikido. So be kind to yourself. It's not going to work always. But just like you would in any technique, like why didn't that technique work? Go back, look at it through yin and yang. Look at it through a reconciliation of yin and yang. Look at it through the three components. And then readapt. So like where we're at now with my spouse you know, she, she will come and she will help with the kids' class and she will do body conditioning. There's a workout class we do beforehand. And then she goes home. She doesn't stay to do all the other training. But there's things, right? She has her life. She has things she has to do. But I keep working towards not having the dojo be a contrasting aspect to her or my marriage. Again, be kind. Because I'll tell you this. Who do we learn the most from? 
when it comes to our Kihon Walza development, we learn from the most difficult or challenging, intense uke. We don't learn from the perfect uke. This is why the choreographed uke teaches us nothing. But if you understand the uke-nage relationship as a dynamic, then you can easily understand your marriage as a dynamic. And the person who has taught me the most about the way, the person that has brought me in more communion with that apophatic sense of God, the person who has cultivated in me more than anything and anyone else this true mystical sense of love is my wife. Because of the challenges and the difficulties and the continued effort to continue seeking harmonization and reconciliation. And so you cannot let yourself feel like you're failing. The goal is to engage, to never retreat, to not run away because it's easier. If you had to define the warrior, which is the person that practices Budo, in one dichotomous phrase, the difference between the warrior and the non-warrior is the non-warrior disengages and retreats. And the warrior does not. And the warrior does not retreat and does not disengage even when he or she senses their own demise, their own personal extinction. And what I'm going to tell you now might not make sense, but keep it in your mind. The point of love, which is the point of your marriage, is for you to disappear, for you to die, for you to become non-existent. Then you have Aiki between you and your spouse. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.